Hey guys, welcome to another episode of your Daily Dose of History. Today, we're going to be looking at technological innovations from 1450 to 750, with the focus on maritime empires. As we move beyond land-based empires and shift to a more fluid atmosphere, it is vital that we recognize some key differences from our two distinct civilizations. Land-based empires are synonymous with large land masses. The majority of the land was inhabitable, but if the empire had a large and powerful army, it would have been able to prosper. The land empires also needed to be united in both the religious and government sectors to succeed. Due to being landlocked, the empires had to become self-sufficient. Agriculture and trade were very important to them. Forced labor and war was common in land empires. Maritime empires are known for inhabiting areas of land near bodies of water. They preferred to stay separate and had no centralized power. The maritime empires were more private and self-sufficient compared to many land empires. Having no centralized power meant that the maritime empires could go from being large and powerful to small and weak within a couple of months. Maritime empires did not have very strong militaries and usually were much smaller than land empires. What about technology? Shipping was initially dominated by slower, slow-sailing carriers differentiated only by the number of masts, rigging plant, and size of hull. However, as our time period ends, emphasis was placed on speed. So let's look at a unique example of technology. The advanced magnetic compass that originated in China. This innovation allowed for sailors to align themselves with the Earth's magnetic field allowing for smoother travel and navigation. There were numerous contributors to this mass technological period, with development in shipbuilding merging from the Mediterranean, Atlantic, and Baltic regions. Finally, let's go to where I'm getting all of this information and learn how to distinguish between primary and secondary sources. When it comes to research and inquiry, there are two types of sources, including primary and secondary. Primary sources are first-hand accounts of a topic, while secondary sources are any account of something that is not a primary source. Published research, newspaper articles, and other media are typical secondary sources. Secondary sources can, however, cite both primary sources and secondary sources. Not all evidence is of equal value and weight. Data from a primary source is the ideal type of data to collect. The closer we can get to original account of the target information or event, the more accurate the information will be. Primary source data is particularly important when doing research or trying to gain a deep understanding of a situation as it contains the original or raw evidence. In comparison, secondary sources typically include information where people began developing initial understandings of a topic and literature reviews. While both primary and secondary source data are used in research, new knowledge emerges from from analysis of primary source data. Luckily for us, my teachers have compiled a list of resources on on Canvas that come from a generalized area. Shout out to Ms. Wright and Ms. McNeil. Let's take a break, and once we come back, we'll dive into how Magellan traveled around the globe. As we explore maritime travel, let's take a look at one explorer's amazing journey around the world and draw 
draw some connections as we go through. In 1519, Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan led a Spanish expedition with a fleet known as the Armada de Maluca to reach the Malucas or Spice Islands that resulted in the first circumnavigation of the world in 1522. Upon the death of Magellan in the Philippines in 1521, Spanish navigators Juan Sebastian Elcano led the expedition in the return trip to Spain. Thus, the expedition is now often called the Magellan Elcano circumnavigation. The goal of this expedition was to find a western route to the Malucas, the Spice Islands, and trade for spices. Let's stop right there. Notice how much trade was highlighted. All of this was organized for the sole objective of spice trade. And I think it's safe to say we can note down trade as a key characteristic of today's topic. Magellan left Spain on the 20th of September, 1519, sailed across the Atlantic, and discovered the strait that now bears his name, allowing him to pass through the southern tip of South America into the Pacific Ocean, also which he named. The fleet performed the first ever crossing of the Pacific, stopping in what is now today called the Philippines, and eventually reached the Moluccas, accomplishing its goal. A much depleted crew finally returned to Spain on September 6, 1522. The fleet initially consisted, consisted of about 270 men and five ships, of which included four carracks and one caravel. The expedition faced numerous hardships, including mutinies, starvation, scurvy, storms, and hostile encounters with indigenous people. Magellan died in battle in the Philippine Islands and was succeeded as Captain General by a series of officers, with Juan Sebastian Elcano leading the trip onward to Spain. He and 17 other men on one ship, the Victoria, were the only ones to circumnavigate the globe. This expedition was funded mostly by King Charles I of Spain, with the hope that it would discover a profitable western route to the Moluccas, as the eastern route was controlled by the Portugal under the Treaty of Tordesillas. Through the expedition, though the expedition did find a route, it was much longer and more arduous than expected, and was therefore not commercially useful. Nevertheless, the first circumnavigation has been regarded as a great achievement in seamanship and had a significant impact on the European understanding of the world. Now, like I said, let's connect this back to some technology that was used. Ferdinand Magellan used a backstaff, compass, compass road, and lead line. We already know what the compass and compass roads was through most likely common knowledge. So let's look at the other two. The backstaff is a navigational instrument that was used to measure the altitude of a celestial body, in particular, the sun or moon. When observing the sun, users kept the sun to their back, hence the name, and observed the shadow cast by the upper vein on a horizon vein. A sounding line or lead line is a thin length of rope with a plummet, generally of lead at its end. Regarding the actual composition of the plummet, it was still called a lead. Leads were swung or cast by a leadsman, usually in the chains of a ship up against the shrouds. Alright, 
What do you say we take another break? See you back in a few. Thanks, guys. Alright, so we've been talking about a lot of different ideas. In this segment, I really want to zoom into some specific tools and ship designs. Let's get into it. First up, we have the astrolabe. This tool is created by the Greeks and mastered by the Islamic world, and it measures the inclined position of celestial bodies to determine location. Astrolabes have been traced back to the 6th century, and they appear to have to come into wide use from the early Middle Ages in Europe and the Islamic world. By about the mid-15th century, astrolabes were adopted by mariners and used in celestial navigation. We can connect this to Magellan's backstaff, which also relied on celestial bodies as part of the process. I think we should keep the following question in mind. Why were celestial bodies considered so accurate? Did the tools rely on this position to be useful? Next up, we have wind patterns. European mariners began to understand the circular gyre of trade winds. For example, Portuguese ships would sail west to India before rounding Africa to avoid sailing against the winds. How about some ship design? So, we have three different ships, including the Caraval, Carrick, and Flute. Let's talk about the Caraval and Carrick first. Both of these ships are from the 15th century with a Portuguese origin. The caravel was used to explore the west coast of Africa, and it contained a lateen sail, which allowed it to efficiently utilize the previously discussed wind patterns. The carrick was essentially a larger caravel, as it contained three to four masts and was used to trade in areas beyond the African coast, such as Asia and America. <coughs> Columbus, Columbus's Nina and the Pinta are two examples of a caravel, while the Santa Maria was a famous carrick. If we look back to Magellan's circumnavigation, you might remember that the fleet consisted of four carracks and one caravel. This indicates that the journey was intended to be long-term, as a singular caravel was smaller than the rest, and was likely used as a means of navigation support. Next, we have the Flute, a 16th century Dutch cargo ship. This ship became incredibly vital, and it carried almost one half of all European sea trade. The key factor of these ships was that they could ca carry twice the, cargo for, twice the cargo for half the cost and half the crew. A pretty good deal if you ask me. That's a wrap for this segment. After we come back, let's take a look at three critical questions that may help us connect art to today's topic. Hey, welcome back. This segment is going to be centered around three key questions, which goes the following. What is the purpose of this work of art? What, if anything, does this work of art hope to communicate? And finally, what elements should we notice about this work of art? Let's start with some background knowledge about the individual depicted in this piece, Prince Henry the Navigator. Henry is often credited with the beginning of the Age of Discovery, the period during which European nations expanded their reach to Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Henry himself was neither a sailor nor a navigator. He did, however, sponsor many exploratory sea voyages. 
1415, a little bit before the time period that we're focused on, his ships reached the Canary Islands, which had already been claimed by Spain. In 1418, the Portuguese came upon the Madeira Islands and established a colony at Porto Santo. When these expeditions began, Europeans knew virtually nothing about the area past Cape Bojador, on the west coast of Africa. Superstition had kept them from going any further. But under Henry's orders, Portuguese sailors moved beyond Bojador, and by 1436, they had traveled as far as the Rio de Oro. In addition to sponsoring exploratory voyages, Henry is also credited with furthering knowledge of geography, map-making, and navigation. He started a school for navigation in Sagres, at the southwestern tip of Portugal, where he employed cartographers, shipbuilders, and instrument makers. It was from Lagos, near Sagres, that many of his sponsored trips began. Now, we know how significant this man was. Let's take a look at this piece. Quick note to Ms. McNeil and Ms. Wright, this next part will be more clear if you have the piece pulled up invisible. It's located in the art section of Canvas. Alright, hopefully you're good. Our first question, what is the purpose of this work of art? In this artwork, Prince Henry is centered, with all the other factors of the piece smaller or in the distant. I would say that the purpose of this piece is to depict Henry as a leader of maritime travel. There is a group of soldiers slash explorers that are behind him, and they might be representative of the scholars and scientists that he helped nurture. In the background, there seems to be an emphasis on a school of navigation, where a lot of ideas flourished. Our second question, what, if anything, does this work of art hope to communicate? Through the em emblems in the corners of the art, it seems that Prince Henry is being communicated, communicated as all-knowing. With a closer look, we can see that there's not just a group, but a mass of explorers on horses in the landscape below. We can deduce a single message from all these occurrences. Prince Henry and his acts are all large scale. He expanded all aspects of navigation, like stated before, and he broke many boundaries through the trips that he overlooked or sponsored. And finally, what elements should we notice about this work of art? An element that seems to be prevalent is emphasis. The placement of Henry, Henry the Navigator is indicative of a superior role, superior role in the piece. In the top left, there are miscellaneous objects relating to navigation, including maps and compasses. This suggests an element of symbolism to show the audience that Prince Henry supported all these pathways of travel. At last, a more physical element is color. Throughout the artwork, we can see that color is only provided in bright shades in certain areas. This means that the artist wants to focus your attention on these locations, telling us to emphasize Henry, the items, and a specified group of explorers. I hope you all learned a thing or two about maritime exploration, technology, and its surrounding areas. I'll leave you with a few questions to think about. Out of all the innovations, tools, and designs that we discussed today, what do you think directly affects trade the most? Between Ferdinand Magellan and Prince Henry, do you see any common motives? I'll give you a hint. Spices. And here's a fun one. Choose your ride. A caravel, carrick, or flute. I would take a caravel any day because I am speed. 
This is Anakin Sunaganta, signing off with your daily dose of history. Stay smart, everyone.